Since 1984, the Criterion Collection has been dedicated to publishing important classic and contemporary films from around the world in editions that offer the highest technical quality and award-winning original supplements. No matter the medium, Criterion has maintained its pioneering commitment to presenting each film as its maker would want it seen, in state-of-the-art restorations with special features designed to encourage repeated watching and deepen the viewer's appreciation of the art of film. This is the Criterion Connection, where we journey through those films together by connecting them to each other through thematic, cast, and crew members, or any other various elements. Welcome to the Criterion Connection, a podcast where two film lovers explore the Criterion Collection by connecting these iconic films to each other through the greater tapestry of cinema. We craft double features of films that are connected in some way to one another, be that thematically, by the decade they were released, by performers, directors, anything you like. The only caveat is that every film we discuss must be a part of the Criterion Collection. We'll also be highlighting, especially this week, new additions to the collection, great hidden gems on the Criterion channel, and more. My name, as always, is Mackenzie, and this is my lovely, beautiful co-host, Ian. Hello. Hello. And this week we are beginning a new double feature by discussing our first film of said double feature, the newly minted as of truly two weeks ago, Spine 1184, 1996's The Watermelon Woman, directed by Cheryl Dunier. I'm excited to talk to you about this, Ian. I'm really excited to get to this one. It was, I think... One of the like the most freshest and just fun films that we've gotten to watch lately. Um, we talk about the Criterion Channel, Mackenzie. So like often we're talking about very like heavy and austere films. Like no like that's not to say that the Watermelon Woman isn't dealing with interesting and like heady subject matter, but it's a lot of fun. So I'm excited to get to yeah. talk to it, talk to you about it. It's very different, I think, than anything we've covered so far, which is fun. And I hope is a delight for our audience. But speaking of the Criterion channel, Ian, did you check anything out on the channel or anything at all this week? I, you know, I have been still kind of moving through my Varda journey. I did a little bit of that. But I also started working on somebody else's filmography who's not <laughs> on the channel. He's not in the collection. Um, his friends call him Joe, uh, but his name is a Pitchapong. We're aesthetical. And he is a Thai auteur known for such films as Uncle Boon Me, who can recall his past lives, Tropical Malady, and, oh, um, Cemetery of Splendor. Uh, really, really, really interesting filmmaker who has been on my radar for a long time. A few of his films have been on the Sight and Sound Top 200 list, I believe, I think mm. Tropical Malady, his film, is one of the only ones to be featured on that list from Thailand. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, so um, he's a really, really interesting filmmaker. He has a queer background. He's from a country that doesn't get uh, showcased a lot in the world cinematic stage. Um, yeah. And a really good friend of mine is a huge fan and has really like told me a lot about his films and like I said, he's been on my radar for a long time. So over the past week, I checked out Uncle Boon Me, who can recall his past lives. And I absolutely love this film. <laughs> um, I just connected with it on such a deep level. Um, there's so many ways I think that one can approach this film. It's a meditation on uh, life, on love, on like our own personal histories and our family histories. Um, and also what that entails for our present and our future. It's, I think, a very hard film to talk about. Um, mm. But I, you know, recently been dealing with some really um, hard personal things. I've had a family member pass away in the past week. And it just hit me at the right time. And mm. I connected with it on a very deep emotional level. Um, and then I checked out his other film, Tropical Malady, which is a queer romance set in Thailand. Um, but oh, it's wow. also a um, it's also like a meditation on survival and what it means to be in love with someone and what it means to exist as your own person in a relationship and how that can be all consuming and destructive. 
Um, so, you know, very, very, very difficult films, very heady films. Speaking mm-hmm. of heady films, um, <laughs> not in the Criterion collection though, as, um, wow. yeah, as one might think he, he's a, he's a prime candidate for a box set down the road. I'm sure there's some rights issues, but I would not be surprised if we see some Joe films in the collection in the future. I might've written Criterion over the past couple of days to uh, include yes. these films in the collection. Uh, <laughs> but enough about me and at, at Pitchapong. Uh, what about you, Mackenzie? <laughs> what have you been watching over the past week? Yeah, I mean, you know, I've been saying it on like every podcast ever on the internet. I haven't been watching a lot lately. Uh, I will say I did make sure because I've been also we're just getting personal on this podcast I've been doing some iron transfusions recently that I've been needing for my health which mean I'm sitting in a hospital room for like an hour uh, each week uh, each week a couple hours and so I was like I'm gonna watch a bunch of Varda shorts so I found like random Varda shorts on the Criterion channel and watched them but the one that's not on the channel which I would say was maybe my favorite of the day was tribute to Zugu I don't know how to say the name Juju the cat have you seen this I've I I have seen bits of it in the documentary about <laughs> Varda's life, but not the thing itself. I mean, it's two minutes long. It's literally just her being like, "I love my cat" for two minutes, yeah. and it's uh, <laughs> I loved it so much. So uh, if you never if you need a little pick me up, go to go to YouTube and and check that out because it's just Varda filming her cat. It's great. Um, but other than that, I won't talk about it much because on ADP today, I talk about it with Br- our dear friend Brandon and Kev, where I watched Terminator Two Judgment Day, and no spoilers, but let's just say redeemed james cameron's <laughs> oh. back in my good graces after terminator one All which right. i famously disliked so uh that was great <laughs> have you seen t2 ever i have seen t2 actually it was the first film recommended to me in the vhs village by our friend oh, Kev wow. himself that's yeah. so funny yeah it, uh it's a good movie i'm not i'm also not a terminator one fan though so you know as often we find ourselves in similar company we are once again <laughs> well i definitely enjoyed t2 way more than t1 so that was that was good but um the big thing is last night actually my fiance rachel wanted to watch marie antoinette sofia coppola a very iconic film of the early aughts um i like sofia coppola's vibe like as i the only other thing i've seen from her is the virgin suicides which is in the collection could be a future episode one day we could talk about sofia um i loved that movie a lot i loved the it, she just i thought that was such a powerful debut feature to come out of the gate with just such a defined aesthetic and visual language in which she wanted to work within the tragedy of that story is still so effective even though the title kind of gives away the ending uh i think my review was something of like the biggest kind of dead dove don't open movie ever because i see the name and then by the end i'm still moved and sad and surprised by by what i'm seeing at the end and i thought it was a beautiful film uh i did not like marie antoinette as much on forge uh i love the first like hour of marie antoinette i love the first hour and some change where she's not a queen yet she's you know historically that the years of 15 to 19 were those years before she was a queen um, and I think I wrote this in my review. I think maybe for me personally, it would have been stronger if Sophia had just focused on those years because clearly she wanted to talk about girlhood and femininity and uh, decadence and specifically sort of reframing this historical figure who we know so much about or we think we do um, as a girl. And like this reminder of like she was also a, a child when all these things were happening to her. And as she got older, the story just got a, the point of view just got a little bit muddier for me, I think. And by the end, I was sort of like, I just felt a little bit like the third act didn't quite land in the way the first act did for me. Um, but obviously, all the things that everyone says about it, I agree with. It looks gorgeous. It's, I mean, they filmed in Versailles. You see that texture, that the beauty of the spaces they're in. It's it's one of those things where it's like, man, you you just don't get stuff like this in the dome, you know, like going on sets and going on location and being to being able to be in these beautiful spaces it elevates the film in such an amazing way great performances kirsten Dunst is phenomenal in this movie jason schwartzman i love as yeah. well in this movie he's so cute i love him our in pretty much anything augie Steenbeck. our favorite augie yeah. um i love him a lot um so I, I thought their performances were really lovely um the music i dug a lot obviously my favorite was the uh susie sue and the banshees 
Hong Kong Garden drop where it goes from mm-hmm. the violin mm-hmm. rendition of it to the real rendition of it. I love Suzy Sue. And mm-hmm. uh, I did think to myself, well, the Knight's Tale, David Bowie, <laughs> um, Golden Years drop walked so that this yeah. Suzy Sue drop could run. Um, yeah. So yeah, I ended up giving three stars and a big fat heart. I liked it. I just didn't fall as in love with it as I did with the Virgin Suicides. Um, but I guess you could see it being a film I revisit again. And Sophia doesn't have a lot of films, so I feel like I need to just buckle down and do the Sophia Coppola journey before yeah. Priscilla comes out, which I'm not super jazzed to see another movie about Elvis. Yeah. I know coming from the uh, Elvis podcast co-host, but um, you know, maybe I'll see it. I also just don't like Jacob Elordi. I don't know. I'll 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 figure it out. I'll see what the reviews are saying before I decide to go see it. But generally, yeah, I, mean- I dig the vibe of Sophia Coppola. Yeah, I mean, we were talking a little bit about it before we started recording, but I've been really cynical about movies, especially new ones that are coming out in theaters. Mm-hmm. Um, we're both going to see Barbie this weekend. I um, feel like I was in the pocket more for it uh, than I am at this exact moment, but hopefully I'm wowed by it. Uh, the Priscilla movie doesn't do anything for me. I mean, we've talked about this before. The Elvis one didn't do anything for me, but mm-hmm. I don't know. Uh, Sophia is a hit or miss. Now I'm, I'm famously, uh, she's an absolute hit on Mary Antoinette for me. I love that movie. So happy you checked it out. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, no, uh, I, 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 I would be, I would be elated if Priscilla turned out to be amazing, but alas, we're not talking about Priscilla today, Mackenzie. Yeah. Cause we have, a lot of criteria news to get through. So Ian, I want to toss it to you. Break it down for me. What is coming to the Criterion channel next month? All this advertising oh, we do for Criterion. I mean, I we got we to yeah, connect I mean, with them. We got to we get, we get in there. I need, I need some Criterion money lining my pockets at the moment because I'm about to tell you, Mackenzie, the channel lineup for, let's see, August is phenomenal. Uh, yeah, it's just, it's really, really good. We got, uh, Criterion Editions coming to the channel. We've got exclusive streaming premieres and a couple of amazing programs. So I want to run down a couple of these. I'm not going to do everything because if people want to, they can check out the entire lineup, which I will have links to in the show notes. Um, but yeah, I want to like start off with the Criterion Editions. Recently announced Bo Widerberg's new Swedish cinema. This is going to be four films by a late in life contemporary of Igmar Bergman's Bo Witterberg known for his lush visuals and political com- uh political you know um works of art so it's going to be four films which have uh, a couple of them have already been available on the Criterion channel most notably Elvira Madigan I think is his most famous work um and then of course the Watermelon Woman, our feature film discussion, yeah. is going to be on the channel next month. So if you're coming to this episode a couple weeks late, you have the opportunity to just go watch it on the channel. Maybe the watching it on the channel got you to us. And if so, welcome. Um, but yeah, no, that's exciting. Aside from that, they've got a couple really interesting programs coming out. Uh, one of the ones that is most intriguing to me is one called Grindhouse Gothic, which is subtitled Roger Corman directs Edgar Allan Poe. We've got uh-huh. films such as The Tomb of Nigeria, The Pit and the Pendulum, oh, House yes. of Usher. So these are probably some like B-movie, schlocky, just trashy fun. Um, yeah. Roger Corman, most notable for getting people like uh, Jonathan Demme up and started. And just somebody who knew how to make a m- movie cheaply and quickly. Um so yeah, I'm sure like for fans of exploitation cinema, for fans of Grindhouse, this is going to be a real treat. Uh, other than that, we've got uh, a really interesting uh, collection and program that I'm excited to check out. Hip Hop, which is going to yeah. feature multiple films uh, and obviously some music videos, as well as I believe some documentaries. But a uh, previous episode, Do the Right Thing, is coming back to the channel in this They've also got uh, John Singleton's Boys in the Hood and Poetic Justice, two really phenomenal films. Um, The recent 4K restoration of Belly from 1998 is going to be up in there as well. And just so many good things. I think this is going to be the coolest program on the channel in the next month. (laughs) Um, 
And then we've got Euro Thrillers, which looks like it's just one of those programs where they kind of cobble together everything they've got on the channel already, get a couple new films to add into it, and then just package it as a programmer. So we've got Diabolique, uh, La Piscine, uh, Les Sermons, which is just films that I recognize as having been on the channel for kind of a while, and they're just repackaging it in this genre program, but still something worth checking out, I think. La Piscine um, or The Swimming Pool is uh, probably one of my favorite French films amazing amazing uh like neo-noir and then real quick let's just run down a couple exclusive streaming premieres uh we've got tori and lokita a new film by jean-pierre and luc dardin uh very famous french filmmakers also brothers that uh almost always work together have many films in the criterion collection as well as on the channel ready to watch um, a film by Juan Pablo Gonzalez called Dos Estaciones, um, which appears to be a character study that mixes documentary and fictional filmmaking styles, um, but looks to be more of like a working class story um, as well as a character study. And then uh, finally, uh, exclusive streaming premiere slash a restoration premiere. Something I'm very excited to see is Shuju River, a film by Liu Yi which is something that's been on my watch list for a very long time. Uh, seems to be a very moody and atmospheric love story <laughs> amongst the youth in the Shuju River province um, around Shanghai. I'm very excited to check this out. Uh, Mackenzie, I think there's a film that's coming back to the channel that you're super excited about, but why don't you tell us quickly about that and if there's anything else you're excited to check out in this lineup. Uh, yes, The Apartment, Billy Wilder. King Billy Wilder is returning uh, to the channel in a encore by popular demand. I just bought that on 4K disc. And the second I pulled it out of the packaging, part of the case uh, broke. Uh, so that was fantastic. But mm. uh, now, hey, if you don't own the, 4K, the broken 4K like me, you can watch <laughs> it on the channel. Um, I also am interested. It's this it feels funny to call it a film I don't super love, um, but I'm interested. I only just noticed this as I am floating around this page. Restoration premieres The Delta is coming. I, I didn't realize that film had been restored. Uh, it was very, very hard to see for a very long time, uh, and I watched it. I didn't love it. I gave it two and a half stars. Uh, it has a very divisive ending that I think pull it from a three and a half to a good two, three, three and a half to a two and a half for me. But I do want to push it forward for people because it's a very little seen film i was so shocked to see that it's been restored i watched a very bad version of it because it was it's hard to find but i want to call it out mostly because it's directed by iris Sachs, who is a really interesting director and writer to me uh he was integral to new core cinema and he has a new film coming out called passages uh which i've heard is a very chaotic bisexual uh romance that seems very fun i'm actually so pumped to see that movie um and the reason why i the delta even though i didn't love it it has a place in my heart is because it's one of the few movies that i've seen set in, in memphis and when they're driving around in memphis filming there i can recognize the streets of my home uh and it makes me i'm drinking out of my central barbecue cup right now mm -hmm. for people who are from memphis um and so i love it it's it's you know a very complicated queer love story between a white boy uh and a vietnamese kid and they were kind of they're both young teenage-ish boys figuring out their sexualities while also figuring out sort of have it coming from two different worlds uh and it's interesting so i just want to kind of push that forward for people because uh cool that it's been restored um but yeah check out the watermelon woman if you haven't already great if you want to pause this episode go watch it when it comes on the channel come back We'll see you then. But that's definitely the the big thing that I'm excited about. But there's a lot of stuff and everything. I mean, gosh, that hip hop, uh, it, it looks so amazing. I mean, Ghost Dog is going to be in there. Deep Cover. Like, the travels yeah. of a tribe called Quest. Like, it just all looks so cool. I don't know. Like, look, There's just so many great stuff, as always, coming to the channel. So, yeah, a lot of great yeah. stuff. No, that hip hop program looks phenomenal. Uh, I'd love to dig into it more. But alas... We don't have time because, like you said, so much news. Mm -hmm. Mackenzie, you're going to run us through the Criterion Editions for the month of September. Am I right? October. They went kind of spooky October. this month, I think, on purpose. Ooh. So, yeah. No, let's go for it. Tell us what's coming to the Criterion Collection in October. 
Yeah, absolutely. So we have three new additions to the collection. Spine number 1,194 is Freaks, the Unknown, the Mystic, Todd Browning's Sideshow Shockers, which is something I have never heard of, but these are films from the 20s and 30s that um, were kind of pre-code shocking films, pulpy entertainment films about um, traveling sideshow acts. Uh, People were very excited about this one. I have never heard of this, but I'm very interested in it. Seems very strange. Um, Another one people were very excited about that I've never heard of was spine number 1,195, I believe. Queen of AMC, Nicole Kidman, makes her debut into the (laughs) Criterion collection with uh, Alejandro Aminabar's... Yes. Alejandro Aminabar's The Others... Um, so that is exciting. Apparently kind of like a gothic horror film from 2001. And then finally, a very recent film coming to the collection, 2022's Nanny, directed by Nikiatu Jusu, uh, spy number 1196, another kind of horror film, I believe. Uh, the cover is very spooky. They went in a very like themed direction for the October yeah. releases, it seems. Um, again, another really exciting film, probably the one I'm most excited about in terms of these releases. Uh, and then we have two restorations. Nicholas Rogue's Don't Look Now is being restored in 4K, as well as The King David Cronenberg's Videodrome. So yeah. a lot of fun stuff coming. What are you, I mean, I'm, I said I'm most excited about Nanny probably because I heard about it last year and never really got around to seeing it. What are you the most excited to see entering the collection this month? probably nanny as well i'm really interested in the others i remember seeing the movie poster for that when i was a kid going to the cinema uh and i remember being spooked by it and also just you know interested so i'm kind of interested that this film that i actually had like a con connotation as being like kind of trashy is in in the collection now so i'm interested in that hopefully it gets released on the channel that'd be fun to watch um and then I, I'm i not super invested in David Cronenberg, but I do know Criterion Heads love him. And a, yeah. I'm sure that the subreddit and some of our friends are just awash with joy at the restoration announcement of his masterpiece, Videodrome. I'm sure that's going to uh, be a very, very nice October um, Halloween present to a lot of cinephiles and boutique Blu-ray heads. But yeah, no. I got to be honest, it's not the most exciting month for me, but I am revving up for a very, very eventful November and December. Yeah. I mean, we talked about it offline, like at the, in the end, they're a company, you know what I mean? And they're chiming things probably specifically, uh, and November is going to line up with the second Barnes and Noble sale, as well as people buying early for the holidays. And then December is also people buying for various gift giving holidays. Um, so I think that those are definitely going to be the months where they're going to pull out the big guns. So I feel like these next couple of announcements are going to be some big ones. Yeah. I am still pulling for my Eric Romer box set, uh, the four seasons quadrilogy, even though that's not a word. (laughs) Well, we've burned through our news. We knew it was going to be a big week of a lot of stuff to talk about, but we're through with it. Uh, As always, I want to give a little reminder. Speaking of Barnes Noble sale, as I just mentioned, we are accepting letters and voicemails, whatever you want to say. All month, all for the rest of the month. We only have a couple more days left by the time this is uh, coming out. But please continue to send your voicemails and letters about what you're buying at the Barnes and Noble sale, and we are going to share it along with what we got in our kind of big Barnes and Noble sale mailbag episode. Criterion Connection, the Criterion Connection. I always forget the the Criterion Connection at gmail.com is how you can send those to us, and we'll share them on the show in our mailbag. Uh, you can also email us about any of the movies we watch, and we'll you know share them week to week. But we have this big special one coming, so make sure you get your emails in. Please do. And also you can send a voicemail and just rummage through those films that you've got over the phone, and we'd love to hear from you. Um, yeah, and like Mackenzie said, we'll share what we got too and talk about them, but yeah, we'd love to hear from you. But enough of that. Enough of it. It is time to move enough enough it's time to move on to our feature presentation where we're discussing cheryl denier's the watermelon woman so ian give me that sweet sweet synop oh and sweet it will be
The wry, incisive debut feature by Cheryl Dunier gave cinema something bracingly new and groundbreaking. A vibrant representation of black lesbian identity by a black lesbian filmmaker. Dunier stars as Cheryl, a video store clerk and aspiring director whose interest in forgotten black actresses leads her to investigate an obscure 1930s performer known only as the Watermelon Woman whose story proves to have surprising resonances with Cheryl's own life as she navigates a new relationship with a white girlfriend, played by Genevieve Turner. Balancing breezy romantic comedy with a serious inquiry into the history of black and queer women in Hollywood, The Watermelon Woman slyly rewrites long-standing constructions of race and sexuality on screen, introducing an important voice in American cinema. A Cheryl Dunier film the Watermelon Woman. Ian, I think I might know the answer before our listeners. Do you have any history with this film or with Sheldon Yeh as a director? Or even maybe the new queer cinema movement, which this was birthed from? Um, I mean, outside of my relationship with you, Mackenzie, I have zero relationship with The Watermelon Woman, with Sheldon Yeh, except probably having watched some of her television episodes as if somebody, uh, if anybody goes through her filmography they'll find numerous episodes of television that they have more than likely consumed over the past 10 to 15 years um which i'm sure we'll get into a little bit uh when we talk about her but um i mean the new queer cinema is something that i have become increasingly more interested in since getting back to movies you know a couple years ago which is you know already a part of the lore of the show you know ian left cinema when they went to college and then they got back into it a couple years ago and that's how they met you and you know started this podcast and all that jazz but long story short not that much um more every single day Mackenzie I have a feeling I also know the answer to this question but what about <laughs> you what is your relationship to the watermelon woman to Cheryl Dunier and also you know the new queer cinema movement yeah. Um, I, yeah, I, I've talked about my friend Ned a lot on this show, I think various shows. Um, he was really integral in showing me a lot of lesbian film when we were first becoming friends, actually. Uh, he's famously the person who showed me bound for the very first time. Uh, he showed me desert hearts for the very first time film. I also love, and he showed me the watermelon woman for the very first time. And it was all three of those films were films I watched and instantly loved. They were, you know, I was sort of still in like the earlier phases of figuring out my lesbian identity. And so being able to see films where lesbianism was portrayed so positively and the word lesbian was used in such loving contexts um, was so empowering to me. And so I always think of the watermelon woman as a part of like that triad of films that really made me feel very seen uh, when I was first getting into more queer cinema I think as a queer person through my lovely friend who showed me a lot of great movies and yeah after that I also sort of very much was as I was learning more about cinema figuring out about this new queer cinema movement and, and that films like The Watermelon Woman and even Bound yes even though at the time some people didn't fully consider it queer cinema because they were unaware of the identities of the directors um, I think looking back, we can we can solidly say it is a part of that movement, though it's a bit less indie than a lot of the films coming out of that movement. But um, I definitely got way more interested in the movement as a whole. And just I've been so fascinated with just learning more about these movies. Um, I recently watched, you know, Edward II, Derek Jarman's Edward II, which I think is a masterpiece and is absolutely one of the figureheads of the new Christina movement. Uh, the films of Marlon Riggs, which I hope we can do one day. Tongues Untied is maybe one of the most um, incredible pieces of art, film or not, that I've ever seen in my life. Um, a lot of amazing queer cinema was coming out in the 90s. And I just think we were so lucky to have such amazing independent voices coming out of such a horrific time for our community. And I mean, even Todd Haynes, we've talked about a lot, right? Poison was one of his first films that came out during that movement and, and going into Velvet Goldmine. And a lot of, I just, I, I love this film so much. I love the queer films of the 90s because there is such a palpable rage that the people are feeling during this time after being 
um, systematically killed by a government that refused to acknowledge um, the pain that was happening to the queer community. But there's also so much love and excitement at claiming our identities and 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 wearing them proudly so that we cannot be ignored that and all of that comes through with a lot of films in the new queer cinema movement um and so i love them another one i want to call is go fish which i will talk about a bit in this film because go fish is a 1994 lesbian film that uh i feel like is primed to be on the criterion channel one day but was a huge inspiration for cheryl in this film and a lot of people involved in that film were actually in this film including guinevere turner who i am down very bad for uh, as well as the person who is singing um, <laughs> karaoke at first, not the date, but the first, the butch, the redheaded butch who is singing uh, karaoke is the love interest in Go Fish. So I just love also that like a lot of these people were making films together and like Cheryl was like, hey, your film inspired me. And then they were all like, let's make a movie together then. And then they came over to the Watermelon Woman. So I love also the sense of community that was happening uh, during this movement. Yeah, I feel like I've, I've talked too much, but I just I love this era of queer filmmaking and I'm really, really glad we're talking about um, this. And maybe next week we are going to talk about another huge film that came out of this movement, um, really at the very, very beginning. But that is for next week, because this week we're talking Watermelon Woman. Yeah, I mean, and, you know, not to continue to talk about other films, but I'm really happy that you brought up the, you know, films that encompass this movement, because I think there's a lot of films about the AIDS crisis and there's a lot of films about different sects of the queer community, most notably, a you know, a favorite of mine as well, Edward II, that I was introduced to because of you as well. Uh, Derek Jarman, if people have a Criterion Channel submit subscription, go watch his movies. They're leaving the channel in a couple days. Mm-hmm. I've watched numerous of them and they're all phenomenal. What a what a what a pivotal and vital voice in queer cinema and just of for queerness in general just yeah beautiful films um moving on <laughs> no um i really loved a lot about this movie and i really love the fact that you know just being a lesbian is just like a matter of fact like nobody ever there's one sequence in this film where somebody makes a stink and a fuss about the assumption or the insinuation that somebody might be a lesbian it's very brief um but aside from that it's very much being a queer woman is just a matter of fact it is you know girls like girls women like women it is just taken with every single day life there's the assumption that characters who never get a name are gay and it's not you know doesn't feel the need to be addressed Mm -mm. um so that's that's probably one of my favorite things about this movie um and just also the exploration of queer friendship um and casual queer love um but I will say it had a little bit less romance than I was expecting. Mm-hmm. And I was pleasantly surprised about the investigation into queer and black cinema that this turned out to be. I was expecting more of a romantic comedy and I got more of a probing, you know, cinema history lesson in <laughs> a way, even yeah. if that history lesson is somewhat fictional, which I think is also a really interesting aspect of what Dunye is doing with this film is I'm sorry, I didn't mean to go on another side tangent, but no, the fact fine. that Dunye is making a film in which she is giving the audience a history lesson on black lesbians in film in saying, like, our voice has now not been represented, nobody's telling these stories, but is in a way making a meta point about the lack of history, accounting, and representation those women have had because she has to invent a fiction in order to tell that very true story. Mm-hmm. The fact that she had to invent the character, the watermelon woman, doesn't mean that these women didn't exist. It just goes to show the lack of evidence and lack of, well, tangible evidence, the lack of fact keeping that has been done for these women and their stories throughout the past now 100 plus years. Um, yeah, I, 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 I really, really, really enjoyed this movie, uh, you know, green acting and all. Yeah, the first time I watched this, I was convinced it was real. And then I was like, wait, what? At the end, when it like tells you an actress played the watermelon woman, I was like, this wasn't a real thing. Like I, I, you know, and I, I agree that some of the, the acting at times can be feel a bit amateurish, but like, I still like believe so much of it. I still believe like, I really like, obviously on an, on another watch, you know, it's not real, but I, the first time I watched it, I was, I genuinely believed it. And I think now that I have a bit more of a cinematic 
language. Like I can see that clearly that, you know, lesbian, white lesbian female director was very clearly an out, like a, a one-to-one to Dorothy Arzner, who I talked about a few weeks ago because I watched one of her films who was prolific female director in the 30s, probably one of the only female directors in the 30s working at her level, her caliber of studio filmmaking, uh, and very clearly a lesbian, kind of an open secret. And so that the, the images of that act of that director and the videos that we see of these archival footage uh, clips uh, definitely, I think, is trying to... So she's definitely pulling from, from real things, and I'd actually be interested to see some of her research on this. But uh, yeah, I think that so much of Donier's work, and if you end up uh, copying... Uh, the Criterion Edition, or waiting for it to come to the channel, I presume it will also be coming with a few of her short films um, that are also available on her Vimeo, I believe, if you're interested in watching them sooner rather than later. Um, But, like, a lot of her films are talking about interracial queer relationships, and specifically relationships between Black and white women. Like, a lot of her films are talking about that specifically, and so it's not shocking to me that her feature-length film is also talking about that. And I think that there's such interesting nuance in the way she talks about intersectionalism within communities because um, I think the character Tamara is so interesting, right? I think one, I think that actress is hilarious and I think a lot of Tamara's lines are very funny. But, um, you know, she's very, her walls are up, right? She wants to protect herself. She wants to stay within her own community. She doesn't want this sort of um, mixing happening because she's very distrustful of Diana, maybe rightfully so, right? But then, because Diana kind of has bad vibes. Like when we get into it, you're like, Diana, girl, you're kind of, hmm. And you kind of see where Tamara's coming from, but then she's also kind of expressing this hatred towards Annie, who is ostensibly just kind of like a kinky person and like not really, nothing's really wrong with Annie. And so I think that the way Cheryl is able to show the complicated sides of this like kind of intersectionalism within the queer community, I think is interesting. And throughout her films, if you check out more of her shorts, it's like definitely something she cares about. And I, I don't know. I just find it very interesting, I guess, uh, in the way she she talks about it in this film, especially with. I was really struck by that by that uh, letter from the older woman who we never see, right? Who goes to the hospital, but she has these these images of Faye, the watermelon woman, and she leaves this letter where she's like, "Why would you make? Why would you include a white woman in her story? Like, why aren't you focusing on our stories?" And I think that. Cheryl is sort of advocating for we need that intersectionalism to fully flesh out our stories and to ignore parts of Faye would be to ignore her story in its entirety and it's uh and I and I just think that, I don't know I, I was really struck by that monologue specifically that is kind of given by this older woman off albeit off screen uh as it as it relates to the themes in this film and and just like to kind of close the loop in the beginning when you were talking about you know how matter of fact the queerness in this film is that's like another thing I love about it too because I feel like sometimes in movies and and I never hate this but like in movies and tv shows right there's the token queer character this like one this gay person who's hanging out with a group of straight people which like generally isn't where we hang like obviously like we have straight friends but like I feel like generally queer people find queer community and we hang out with each other so that we don't have to explain our identities you know, we don't have to explain ourselves. We don't have to put on something to sort of exist in straight spaces. And so I find it so honest because like, yeah, so often we're seeing queer characters kind of pushed into predominantly straight groups. And I love that like pretty much anyone that you see in this film, you can just assume is queer, except for the people who are like very obviously straight. Like their boss is probably a their straight boss, guy. Oh my yeah. God. Yeah. Like who's kind of creepy to women. And like, <laughs> I don't think Cheryl's like every straight guy is creepy to women, but like we can tell he's straight. You know what I mean? He sticks out as opposed to the queer characters sticking out. So it's kind of flipping that on its head in a way that, yeah, feels very like comfortable and nice. And I just, yeah, it's just nice to see like when they're all out of the karaoke bar, them just existing and you can assume every single mm-hmm. person in that room is a lesbian or, or bisexual or queer in some way. Uh, and that's just cool. Like, it's just cool to see spaces like that and not feel like these characters have to explain their identities in any way. Um, it's refreshing. Yeah. And I think that's what hit me when I first watched it. Do you think she is or isn't in the family? Tamara, why are you always constantly clacking women? We're lesbians, remember, Cheryl? We're into female-to-female attraction. Anyway, you're the one who's supposed to be clocking all the girls. How long has it been since you've been with one, anyway? A week. Remember the emotionally imbalanced event? Ah! 
boy, Cheryl, she was not that bad. Besides, she called Stacy last night, and she asked about you. Oh, she was so Blah, 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 blah. If you two worked as much as you talked, I'd have a chain of video stores by now. Tamara? Yeah. Sure. I mean, I'd I like think also we like get a lot of queer stories often, even still today, that are like the doomed romance, like uh, because of the time or because of the mm -hmm. circumstances. Uh, the, the 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 lovers cannot end up together because of their queerness, and it's interesting because the watermelon woman is dealing with subjects of that a little bit, like you know, uh, Faye, who is the watermelon woman, is. I don't know if it's ever confirmed. You could probably answer that, but it's like suggested to have been um, not suggested. It's more than suggested. I'm just like, want to be very particular with my language. She's obviously in a relationship with this director, uh, this white director at a certain point. So there's mm -hmm. a queer, there's a queerness there. Um, it's a lesbian relationship. And so there's probably a little bit of that like doomed love thing. Maybe it's also um, the race is probably a factor in that as well, mm -hmm. because it's like the twenties or the thirties. Um, but when it comes to present day, when it comes to Cheryl's relationship with, um, what's Genevieve Turner's character? Uh, Diana. Diana. Mm -hmm. When it comes to Cheryl's relationship with Diana in the film, there's, there's no doomed romance there because of their queerness. It's just, you know, yeah, Diana may not be the, you know, tightest person on the down low. <laughs> she might be a little bit of a, you know, dicey character. Um, but yeah, I just, I really love to see queer joy and just queer uh, life, you know, as a matter of fact, as just a day-to-day -day living. I like that Tamara and her get into a squabble. I like that they, you know, just smoke weed together and <laughs> share a bottle of like what appears to probably be like Jack Daniels or something shitty. Um, yeah, no, I, I just got a lot of smiles and a lot of chuckles out of like people hanging out. This is sometimes like a hangout comedy, which is like one of my favorite kinds of vibes when it comes to movies, just movies that I can like relax with and like vibe on heavily. It's it's so interesting that it's so many things all rolled into one because it's a hangout comedy. It's somewhat of a romantic comedy. I think that might be a little, I think it might be pushing it a little bit to call it a flat out romantic comedy, but it's like, I'm also saying it's this like investigative inquiry into black queer cinema history um i feel like cheryl dinier just had so many interests and she didn't know if she was ever going to be able to make another, another movie. movie so yeah. she was like i gotta just put it all out on the on, on on the cutting room floor which is a shame um that being said she's obviously had a very illustrious career in television uh, a lot of people like journey people can like go to television and find a safe home and I'm sure she's a pleasure to work with because it seems like everybody was having a fun time on this set. I can just tell that like a lot of people were friends. And in my brief research, I was like reading that a lot of these people were just queer film historians and yeah, uh, like fans who just like were friends within her circles. And it kind of goes back to what you're saying where it's like, I think it was about something else, but like queer people seek out queer community. And I loved seeing this queer community who are true community, like, I read that the woman who plays the uh, clit archivist is a uh, <laughs> really good friend of Cheryl's and like they wrote stuff together all the time. Mm -hmm. um, so like I, I, that's one of the other things I really loved about the watermelon woman was just seeing this community that was obviously a real one, like exist on screen. Again, it just goes back to what I'm saying of like getting to see just queer life, like everyday life on screen and not necessarily always focusing on the pain um, I think there's a lot of value in that and there's a lot of artistry in that. I mean, we were talking about Derek Darman earlier, like a lot of his art and his movies focused on pain, uh, specifically AIDS. Uh, it's very, very, very hard and challenging subject matter and they're very difficult to watch, but I feel like they're necessary, but I also feel like this is necessary. Mm -hmm. It's like, it's just like everyday life. Yeah. I mean, it's, they're yeah they're both very needed i think for the tapestry of queer cinema history and yeah i love the community as well like you know i said go fish came out in 94 i think and like cheryl saw that and it was a huge inspiration to her and she talked about how she reached out to them and were like i loved your movie i want to make a movie just like that and they were like let's do it let's make a movie then and so you see people going to return wrote and starred in that film 
came over to help with Watermelon Woman. And a lot of people, I believe, involved in Go Fish were also involved in the Watermelon Woman. And yeah, I love that her mom is in it as herself. And like, yeah, the, the clit archivist and the scholar that she talks to that is kind of weirdly racist and making everything about like Italians. Uh, I do think that like these are all people that were a part of this community. And um, yeah, there's something beautiful there. And also like something that I think is also when I think about the works of Derek Jarman and I think about the works, like I think of poison, which is also about, you know, specifically about AIDS. I think of Marlon Riggs's works, which are about AIDS. Um, I think about our film next week, which also talks about AIDS as well. Um, There's, there's like a fear in me (laughs) about younger queer people and their lack of interest in our queer history, because I see so many, and I don't want to, you know, make, the entirety of Gen Z into like a monolith in any way, but a lot of young queer kids um, don't know about or don't care about the queer community, like Stonewall on, you know what I mean? I mean, everything that came before, but the, the Stonewall riots into the AIDS epidemic, like these are very profoundly important parts of our history. And something I love about the watermelon woman is its reverence for queer elders. I love watching one of my favorite parts in the whole movie is the the butch woman talking about Faye and remembering all the stone butches would get dressed up and just try to get Faye's eyes on them and that I, I can see that scene in my mind and I love the way Cheryl films her because there's such a reverence there for and and same with Faye like learning about Faye's queer history like there's a reverence and a love for the queer people who came before us and I think that if we lose that then we lose what makes us community you know what I mean? And um, I haven't gotten the pleasure to watch it yet. I've been trying to be in the right mindset for it. But Derek Jarman's Blue is a film that is a simply a blue screen. The voices, um, he, he was going blind from his own AIDS diagnosis. And it was the last film he made before he died. And recently, and I know it's just letterboxed BS, but recently like a half star review for that went viral of someone being like, I can't believe it was just a stupid blue screen the entire time. Oh, and I, I was just talking about. And it was like... I want to shake these people and be like, you don't get it. Like this matters. The fact that it's just a blue screen because he was blind and he was making art until the day he drew his last breath is beautiful and sad and heartbreaking. And we have to hold that. Uh, And we have to care about him. We have to care about his voice. And we have to care about um, all of the artists and creators and people we lost during that time um, is immeasurable. And so when I see films like The Watermelon Woman, it, sorry, I'm getting choked up. It makes me so happy to see these films where like they're, we need to have this reverence for our career elders. We need to have this reverence for the people who came before us because the reason why many of us can live the way we do is because of them. And so that's something else I love about The Watermelon Woman is that it cares about that. It cares about telling our stories because if we don't tell them, if we don't hold them up, they will be lost forever. So I'm rambling, but that is my message to the queer youth is please care about all the people who gave you your rights because some of them are not around anymore. Many of them are not around anymore and we should care about their stories. Yeah. And, and it's uh, important to yeah. ask why they're not around anymore. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And the watermelon woman does that. And I think that's yeah. what's beautiful about it. No, I think you're right. And I think we could get into a lengthy tirade and a, you know, preachy <laughs> history lesson about like why it is important. Um, I think you've done that beautifully and succinctly without getting too preachy at all. But I do think that there is something to the fact that like, it is a lot easier to be out now. Um, It is Mm -hmm. a lot, I don't think it's painless and I don't think it is without hardship and barriers, but I do think for a lot of people, especially on the coasts and in bigger cities, it's much easier to exist just openly and freely now. Um, But I, you know, I even think for people our age, like, I mean, you had a very different situation, obviously, than me um, and I, you, but like, you know, it was uh, scary to just even be bisexual and question gender growing up because no matter how well-meaning my folks were, how lefty they uh, proclaimed to be, uh, there are always things that get said that make you go like, hmm, is it really okay that I'm the way that I am? Um, But it's films like The Watermelon Woman I'm getting choked up that uh really make it so that we can like be who we want to be and who we just are um it's a beautiful film uh I think Cheryl Denier is a beautiful person 
I yes. think that there's a lot of life in this. I mean, I, you know, I'm a big proponent of the sex scene. I think this is a phenomenal sex scene because it's just full of life yeah. and joy and fun. Like two women having fun, which is like, again, it just goes <laughs> back to what I'm saying. Like I, I think of Portrait of a Lady on Fire, which is a very, very great film, but it's also very austere and heavy mm -hmm. and it can weigh on you. And there's a lot of trauma implied in their romance and their love scenes mm -hmm. there's none of that mm -hmm. here uh and i think that it's just it's excellent and it's fun and it is just a very like i use this word a lot i think it's a very joyous film all things considered and i'm yeah. so happy that it's in the criterion collection me too. I mean, it's a necessary voice. I mean, there was a couple of years ago, Drew Gregory wrote a great post for Autostraddle about how queer voices are a teeny, 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 tiny sliver of the Criterion collection. Still are. They still have a long way yeah. to go. And they're obviously working to add more um, directors of color to the collection, which I think is amazing. And I think Cheryl Donier is like the intersectionalism of that, the queer and black voice that is Cheryl Dunier is now in this collection and it's just so needed and amazing um but yeah we need more queer films I think of um you're talking about the sex scene I also think it's a great sex scene another great sex lesbian sex scene in the Criterion collection is Donna Deitch's Desert Hearts has a beautiful sex scene one of the only other films I can think of off the top of my mind that has a sex scene also directed by a lesbian woman and there's a certain framing and a certain point of view that a woman who has sex with other women, I think, has on sex scenes that involve two women. Um, yeah, the movie, we're talking about the heavy stuff. This movie is also deeply funny. Like, there's so many funny parts of this that come to mind. I, I wrote down the part that made me laugh the hardest was when, you know, she had all these kind of interstitials where she was asking people on the street, like, if they knew who the watermelon woman was and i love the three clearly gay men who were like is she the one with the fruit on her head rosie perez and they're like no that's not rosie perez and then they say something about rosie perez being ugly and then the screen just pops up sorry rosie like that was so funny there was some line where cheryl was like oh what a four-month lesbian relationship and the way she said that was really funny like there's so many jokes in this movie i mean gosh the date singing loving you gets me every time when she tries to do the high note and it's just like deeply bad. Uh, it's, it's a funny, funny movie. Uh, and, and yeah, when you were talking about also just like the sex scene, like Guinevere, I texted Rachel while I was watching, I was like, Guinevere Turner and Cheryl Denier are like peak hot in this movie. Like they're both so hot. Like Cheryl in the pink button up tucked in fit. I was like, who can make that work? I don't even know how she makes that work. Oh, you're muted, Ian. <laughs> every oh man i was just muted there because he had so many good laugh tracks um what i was saying is uh every other cheryl fit i was like i want that i want that so bad she looks she so good she dresses so well you yeah. Know the, yeah 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 no it's so funny the scene you're talking about i i think of speaking of the interstitials that are like sorry rosie i love how 90s this film is in its edit <laughs> yes, and it's yes. just like videotape quality i didn't get to watch the criterion restoration unfortunately um mm. but i i wonder if it's like different because the the transfer that i watched was very videotape e like mm. looked like i was watching a videotape which was in a way a very pleasurable experience um this film just oozes the 90s which is something i think we're all going to get a little bit more obsessed with because you know fashion and trends come in cycles and i feel like we're, we're we're firmly out of the 80s and almost firmly in our 90s kick i feel like the kids the gen zers um which i am somewhat <laughs> i i straddle that threshold very neatly uh are, are are firmly planting us in like 90s nostalgia is cool and hip and fun um <laughs> so i don't know maybe maybe watermelon woman has a uh, mainstream uh second wind coming yeah, I did watch the new transfer, not to give anything away for the end of the month, but I did watch the new transfer and it does um, keep that videotape quality in the scenes that are videotaped, like that are actually on tape, like when Cheryl's talking to the camera or when they're actually filming things. But there is like a very distinct shift between the video camera and the real world, quote unquote. And it looks gorgeous. I mean, it still has that kind of gorgeous kind of film grain to it uh, when in the more real world, uh, non 
camcorder scenes. Uh, yeah, it's a gorgeous, it's a very gorgeous transfer. My favorite funny part in the whole movie was the comedy of errors of Tamara ordering a bunch of porn under Diana's name <laughs> and then Di- and then Diana having yeah. to walk in and be like, yep, this is my very kind of, for me, racist porn that I have yeah. bought. Thank you. And it's like that, honestly, like, again, like this movie is so funny. And so I hope that maybe for listening to this and you haven't watched it yet, um, there's all these beautiful things about that it's saying about queer history and queerness, but also it's just like a very funny movie also, um, which is great. Great, great vibes. And that scene is just punctuated. Like the, the, uh, the button on that scene is just the fact that the creepy boss is like, "Mm." when he's like, we didn't have this title. (laughs) It's fucking, it's a, yeah, it's a great moment. And yeah, I think you're right. It's just a very fun, funny movie. I Um, just looked at my note above where I wrote how much that scene made me laugh with Cheryl's quote of I'm into dating women with mental health right now is also a very funny line, which is like, ain't that a mood of every lesbian on earth? <laughs> Cause we never date women with mental health because we don't have mental health. Yeah. I think you touched on it, but my favorite bit I think in the entire movie is a four month lesbian relationship. <laughs> four month. Lesbian. Yes. It's just like, it's funny. And it also feels like so real to how, at least in my experience, like we talk to one another and the, like the kind of mm-hmm. silly bullshit that queer people say to each other. And, there is sometimes like a language all our own that is sort of beautiful in its own way and the, in the way we discuss and understand each other. And uh, this movie I think has a lot of scenes like that where it just feels like very natural and how queer people talk to each other. Yeah. Well, I think that is a very fine button on that conversation, Mackenzie. I want to go ahead and start wrapping it up because we got to, we got to tell the people we're watching next week. We're going to keep this uh, trend alive. This double feature is going to be, uh, queer as fuck. I don't know if <laughs> the next film is going to be necessarily as funny. I have a very strong uh, impression that there it's is not. some comedy in it. Okay. Yeah, there is. Good. There's there's a lot of funny stuff in it. Um, <laughs> well, it's my pick, yeah. but we'll get to that in just a moment. First things first. Do you have any final thoughts and a star rating on the Watermelon Woman? I have a very strong impression as to what that is going to be. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I didn't remove my five-star rating for this film. It's not typically the kind of film I give a five-star rating to. Like, it's not one of the films that makes me feel giant emotions or or a film that, that blows my mind with the cinematography. But it's a film that is just so special to me because I have never seen anything else like it. And Cheryl Denis' voice is so specific and so needed and so amazing. And I have yet to find a film that speaks to me in the same way the Watermelon Woman does. It's so breezy to watch. It's so easy to watch. I could watch it over and over and over again and not get tired of it because it it, it's, it just feels so comfortable. It makes me feel like I'm hanging out with friends. And I love the way that Dunier takes you on a journey with her. You get to sort of explore this story and discover the truth of Faye Richards and the Watermelon Woman alongside her and the way that she takes you on that journey. I think it's just really great and effective. And I've just, I love this movie for a long time. I'll probably keep it at five stars just because it's, it's just really special to me. I don't know. There's 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 a decent amount of lesbian cinema, but not all times is it good. I say that a lot about Bound of like sometimes you have to pick is it good or is it gay? And I mm. think that this film is both. And uh so yeah, I love this movie, five stars. But Ian, I'm really interested to see where you're gonna land. I mean, we made no bones about our love for this movie. I think it's you know, I think it's phenomenal. Um as far as like the representation and the way that it tells its story, I think is genuinely unique. I am like so, so, so thrilled that this is in the Criterion Collection. Uh, It's a baby step, but it's a step in the right goddamn direction. I want more movies like this that are just good and feel good, that are gay and happy about it and not afraid of it and not about the sadder aspects of it. I mean, like I've said, that's important too. And those stories are vital and they need to be preserved and shown and more or less enjoyed as well. But like it is just such a treat to watch a film about a black lesbian moving through life, pursuing passions, and also just like falling in and out of love with someone. I really appreciate the intersectionality, which you've touched on very, very poetically throughout our conversation. And I don't think I can say really anything that you've said any better. I I love that you brought this movie to the table and that we got to watch it. Um, 
it's four stars <laughs> just nice. for me i yeah i don't i don't i don't have a bad thing to say about it it's just something about it you know that's not necessarily in my upper echelon and i've gotten so strict about those five stars but that's totally fine. it's a it's a four-star movie and a big fat heart i can't recommend it enough to people to go check out it's coming to the it's coming to the channel Hey, next it month. is, and then that's a perfect time to take a watch. And it's like eighty something minutes; like it's so Ugh, easy to watch. Easy. Like it's so easy to watch. And speaking of run times, I was just taking a peep on all Letterboxd. Next week's film is seventy one minutes. I did yeah. not realize that. My favorite double feature of breezy watches. This is like a perfect sit down for an afternoon for a couple hours, and you can watch two great movies. Ian, I'm ready. The people are ready. You got to let us know what we're watching next week. <laughs> having a ball wish you were here where does voguing come from and what exactly is throwing shade this landmark documentary provides a vibrant snapshot of the 1980s through the eyes of new york city's african-american and latinx harlem drag ball scene made over seven years paris is burning offers an intimate portrait of rival fashion houses from fierce contests for trophies to house mothers offering sustenance in a world rampant with homophobia, transphobia, racism, AIDS, and poverty. Featuring legendary voguers, drag queens, and trans women, including Willie Ninja, Pepper LaBeja, Dorian Corey, and Venus Extravaganza, Paris and Burning brings it. Celebrating the joy of movement, the force of eloquence, and the draw of community. We are watching Jenny Livingston's seminal 1990 documentary, Paris is Burning. Yes. Oh my gosh. I've watched this in years and i'm so excited to watch it again this has been on my radar for so freaking long and when you were like oh the watermelon woman's getting added to the collection we're watching it immediately i was like perfect i really want to watch paris is burning there's a queer connection there um i'm putting it up and it's gonna be our first documentary and yeah it's uh we watched a less than 90 minute film this week we're watching a less than 90 minute film next week And I want to recommend, it's not required by any means, but I was just looking it up and there is a 1968 film called The Queen uh, that you can actually find uh, kind of restored maybe um, on YouTube. Uh, It's about 60 minutes long and I would call it sort of a spiritual prequel to um, Paris is Burning only because it shows the very white pageant scene that was happening in New York City mm. and at the very end of that documentary you see the schism of queens of color realizing how misrepresented and underappreciated they are in those communities which leads to the beautiful communities we see in Paris is Burning so if you want extra ball and drag content in your week i recommend checking out the queen but um paris is burning is required watching it is so good (laughs) not to give away anything about next week but it's on the criterion channel as well as max so it's easy to watch very easy to watch and also it's 71 minutes as we've said so easy to watch boom bada bing no excuses it's a it's a queer cinema (laughs) lesson with your pals mckenzie and ian at the criterion (laughs) connection um so we're so excited for that as always if people want to write in or tell us what they liked about our discussion if they liked the watermelon woman if they like paris is burning or of course what they're getting at the barnes and noble 50 percent off sale they can write or send us those voicemails to the criterion connection at gmail.com and we will save up the ones about the 50 percent off sale for that bonus app where mackenzie and i will talk about what we got and what y'all got and we'll play your uh, voicemails and read your emails about the films we cover and anything else right on the show. But that is it from me, Mackenzie. Is there anything else? Nothing else for me. Well then, until then. We will bring it to you every ball. <laughs> See you next time on the Criterion Connection.